The uh, next topic will be, I'm sure, uh, uh, something that's going to be close to the hearts of uh, a lot of us in here, um, called the uh, productivity of speculation. Thank you, Mary. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to take out a little time to recapitulate what we have done so far, a kind of look back and to give you and keep this big picture in evidence. Without that, I think it would just fall apart, but I'd like to keep the main idea uh, in front of us. So let me go back to my first point, which I made yesterday. Equilibrium theory of the markets is out. This equilibrium theory of the markets is in. And that's not new. This is going back to Karl Menger. What is new is applying this basic and fundamental principle to the bond market. Because the bond market is the one which is responsible for the a process whereby interest rates are established. And I recall the seesaw idea, bond price goes up means interest rate goes down and vice versa. So let's take a different look at the same idea and I recall this familiar idea this how mainstream economics explains the price formation. We start with the coordinate system and the horizontal axis is P, meaning price, vertical axis Q, meaning quantity, and there is going to be a demand schedule and there is going to be a supply schedule, meaning at different, different prices, different amounts of a certain good will be demanded or supplied, and these two curves intersect, and this intersection point is the equilibrium price. So the demand schedule obviously suggests that the higher the price, the smaller the demand. So this will be a falling curve. And the price tends to zero as, I'm sorry, the quantity tends to zero as price tends to infinity. There will be no demand at uh, infinitely high prices. Except for hyperinflation. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the demand schedule. Supply schedule is increasing. As the price is getting higher, the supply is getting higher too. Again, except under hyperinflation. So you have to think of something like that. As price goes to zero, nothing will be supplied. So we might think that this fast moving Now, the important thing is the intersection point, and this is going to give you the equilibrium price and the quantity which is supplied at the equilibrium price is going to clear the market. There's as much supplied as the demand is. Now, of course, we have dismissed this. So, cross this out. We don't look at things in this way. However, we can put something in its place. And this I find very remarkable. Because as you recall, we are working in terms of two prices instead of one. The higher ask price and the lower bid price. 
and the spread in between the two, and the spread is never zero, according to Karl Menger, and we have agreed with that, and we are trying to extend this idea to the bond market as well. But the, the idea of Menger can be further improved. It's not just there are two prices instead of one, as we did, but these two prices depend on the quantity. Quite obviously, it makes a difference whether you want to buy a dozen eggs or just one egg. The seller of eggs may quote a different price if you buy more. As a rule, he will or she will quote a lower price. And therefore, we are facing actually infinitely many ask prices and infinitely many bid prices, depending on the quantity. Because those who sell, they will have to think ahead. But if I'm selling a very large quantity, I want to be sure that I'll be able to replenish my stockpile so that the next customer can be satisfied as well. And uh, the buyers do expect to pay a smaller price if they buy quantity. So to accommodate this idea, we have not just a single ask price, single bid price, but we'll have a curve. And that's what the picture is. This is the ask price. The coordinate system is the same. This is the price. This is the quantity. Probably I would have to change this one, sorry. The price is now the vertical axis and the quantity is the horizontal axis. So the ask price is actually a curve. And why is it that it's falling first? Because, as I say, the buyers expect to pay less. But if the quantity demanded is getting very, very large, then the suppliers say, no, wait a minute, I cannot deliver that big a quantity without making sure that I will be able to replenish myself. So that's why the ask price is going to rise again once a greater quantity is demanded. The bid price is like this. Now, what I find remarkable is that you can derive this picture from that if you eliminate the equilibrium price, the intersection between these curves, and just bridge over the thing is this way. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. After all, this is not my topic uh, during this lecture. I'm just trying to give you a little review which will stick. Uh, and I hope you will remember this picture. So the bit price is not a single price, it's a curve. But the remarkable fact is that there is a stable range. And this is, you might call it, I won't call it right, a commercial range. This is the range within which you find most of the trade. There will be exceptions outside, but most of the trading takes place in certain quantities, normal conditions. Okay. So that's the stable range. The uh, ask price appears to be constant.
very larger quantities and ask yourself in each of these quantities what kind of spread belongs. And you survey all the goods which are traded in the markets. And you will find that certain goods have a spread which, although getting larger and larger, but at the other models trade. We'll say those are more liquid than others. So we can compare the liquidity of saleability of different goods by looking at the spread as a function of quantity. <coughs> if the spread is increasing relatively at a relatively low rate, the saleability will be greater. For example, big wheat on the one hand and Christmas trees on the other. And you will find that Christmas trees are not very simple because their spread increases very fast as the quantity. And that has to do with the fact that we are dealing with a perishable item. And think of other examples, you can look at other examples. And for certain goods, very small number of goods, you will find that this spread is virtually constant. So these are going to be the most liquid or most, most saleable quantities, or you might say the marketability of these in the large is the greatest. And these are the precious metals, in particular gold. I don't try on silver because you might guess that when you come to the market with small silver, you play the leading role. You can think about this. I just throw it out. You can take it home if you think about this. Uh, in my notes, this will be worked out, and uh, you can refresh what you heard here when the notes will become available. Also, the interesting thing is that these are two different concepts. And it's also interesting that during history, there were always two different commodities answer the modern needs of society. In the ancient times, which I have described in the ethos of Lydia and Lysia, they were Money are important also 
because they had the means of forwarding value, converting income into money, and this forwarding. So it's important that you should be able to buy and sell in very small quantities, in quantities which only the drugstore, the drugstore owner is prepared to measure and certify the quantity. You need precision scales, precision instruments, and assaying that all this paraphernalia which makes the transaction more expensive. So it's not really surprising that these expenses add up to the unit price and the spread increases. But for certain commodities, in particular gold and silver, the spread is under control. Because of the extra demand. This, these are the, the uh, materials which are traded in cracked in as small quantities as practically were practically impossible. So this explains the duality of, of money. It's built in. And if you think of it, this is important when you transport value over space, and this is important when you transport value over time. So this duality between space and time shows up in the theory of money. How a monetary system should rule the silver system in that They come out of these two philosophical concepts, mostly philosophical concepts, the space and the time. So that's in a nutshell. Why? The idea of anger, the difference between us and the price of spread, and its variation as a function of quantity explains the evolution of money, and it explains how <coughs> uh, society copes with the need of supplying the population So this is one concept. The other, which we mentioned a lot in so many details, but this is all behind the concept of
difficulty in coming up with a valid interest theory here of interest is that people that long track mind either they think in terms of this, ignoring the other, or the other way around. And therefore, there has been a threat recital fight among economists, those who were swearing by this approach and those who were swearing by the other. And nobody thought of the possibility of synthesis that you can actually combine using the very brilliant idea of Carol Wenger, asking which grasp all the merits of this theory can be combined with the merits of the other and match and merge and come up with a synthesis which is what we are trying to do here. This is the theory of interest which takes time preference into account and other When it comes to the mechanism, you need these because interest rates and bond prices are rigidly linked, they are rigidly connected, and as one moves down, the other moves up and vice versa. But the basic idea is that you cannot dismiss one or the other. You have to consider both, and then you come up with two theory, the synthesis. I am at a loss to understand how such a very brilliant and well-learned man like Mises could dismiss the productive mechanical block, stock, and barrel, everything. It's, it means nothing. I, I know. Because it's, it's so very obvious, isn't it, that if the interest rate rises, then it's in the interest of the capitalists to sell the stock and buy the bond. Because when he sells the stock, he doesn't have to worry about labor problems, supply problems, demand shock, supply shock, all the other problems connected with insurance. And he can just buy a bond and cut the coupons and do it happily ever after. It's obvious that he's going to do arbitrage. And if the interest rate starts falling, at one point, it will fall below the rate of marginal productivity of capital, when it will be in the interest of the capitalists to sell these bonds and put the proceeds into productive equipment by the buildings, machineries, and start producing. Because the rate of return will be higher. This is a very easily understandable idea, yet Mises dismisses it. So please, let's not bicker about often, you know, that my interpretation of Mises is too rigid because Mises admitted this and that. But he never admitted, and I think you agree with that, right? He never admitted that the productivity of capital has a role to play in the formation of interest. And that's my only point. I'm willing to grant all the other points that Mises was right. He is a great man, I admire But I think he made a fundamental mistake in dismissing this aspect of the interest So both play a role. We describe this as horizontal arbitrage, describe this as vertical arbitrage. The thing is that the bond price varies between ceiling and floor, and the floor corresponds to the time preference, and the ceiling 
corresponds to the productivity of capital. And the arbitrage of these uh, market participants here in the marginal bond order. We will sell the bond as the interest rate falls. Even then, I think this is doesn't because this is time reference is the thing. But the fact is that without understanding the, the opportunity loss involved in falling interest rate interest rate, understand this is not a frozen picture this is a moving picture in full colors that's how you should visualize and therefore the arbitrage is the key element it's like hamlet in the shakespeare play you, you don't have the shakespeare play without the protagonist hamlet it just doesn't make sense the same way Time reference theory doesn't make sense without the protagonist who is the marginal bundle. He's ready to sell if the interest rate falls, but he's ready to buy back the bond if the interest rate rises. And that's still half of a If you want to have the full load, then you have to look at the ceiling of the range of within which interest rate uh, varies. So these two topics we have dealt with and uh, perhaps there will be a little more on this when I'm ready to distribute my notes. But I want you to take this idea with you that we are really doing the synthesis here. So <laughs> that was my <coughs> Uh, taking the people to lower any state of the 
they are less than to go to the audience if they believe in their schools. Now, uh, there, there was a literary treatment of this story, and uh, some of the very nice new pictures that we made. And the, in one of these movies, I think Vincent Price was a non-believer dismissed all this idea of very prestigious piece. Most criticized by some someone in saying that for a believer, no definition of no verification of the medical the miraculous cures is is sufficient for a disbeliever, for those who believe. No definition is necessary. So I just apply this point to our approach to the defense For those who want to understand, no definition is necessary. And those who want to challenge this approach, no definition will ever be sufficient. So let's not waste time over defining. You probably all have a good grasp of what I mean by the defensive before, because that's a human instinct. There's no need to disparage and dismiss it as something evil or something uh, which is uh, against public policy, as uh, Roosevelt uh, uh, declared gold hoarding was against public policy and so on. The hoarding does have. Uh, an important role to play in human affairs. And uh, this goes back to the Bible, the uh, Genesis, the story of uh, Joseph, who deciphered the dream of the Pharaoh, saw seven lean and gone cows, devouring seven fat. Cows and nobody could decipher this, but Joseph could decipher seven lean years following seven fat years. And what we have to do is buy a grain and story for the purpose of distributing it. So this is hoarding, obviously, and it, it serves a purpose. And modern speculation is an improvement on that idea. Exactly the same in human society. 
society, because the government can plunder all the surpluses of the producers without any evil effect on the uh, quantity of the production, is of course sheer nonsense, because the, the humans produce the purpose in mind. When they make the extra effort to produce more, then they know exactly what their plan is, whether they plan to use the uh, surplus for the education of the young or comfort in old age or uh, starting a business, accumulating uh, capital, what have you. This is important for them and they will notice, maybe not immediately, but sooner or later they will notice that they are being plundered. The <coughs> producers will realize that the government, through various measures, could be taxation, could be monetary uh, policy, or uh, any other means, or more, so that matter, this is going to have an effect on the quantity of the output, and it is foolish to suggest, as Keynes did, that it just doesn't matter because people will keep producing, they cannot help, they are like the bees, it's in their instinct, and so on. And we have lived to see the day when this will be established without any shadow of the doubt. Whatever it is, hyperinflation, hyperdeflation, but the productive effort of society will collapse because people, more and more people realize, the oil producers have already realized, some food producers have already realized, but other producers may not have, that they are being plundered and therefore they adjust their productive efforts accordingly and eventually society is going to suffer shortages. Whether Colored deflation, colored inflation, it doesn't matter. The outcome is the same. Society is going to suffer because of foolish government policies which uh, legalize and justify plunder. Plunder productive efforts are the producers and the savers as well. They are just as important as the producers. So we have to have a theory of hoarding because the model of the beehive is not applicable to human to humans and human society at large. And uh, the theory of hoarding is based on that property of the precious metal that they are more hoardable than any other. More vulnerable means more marketable in the small. So they are the best material when you want to bring income into wealth uh, so that later on you will be able to convert the wealth back into income. And that leads to exchange this we already talked about. So the theory of hoarding is is a very important chapter in economics, yet it has been ignored or dismissed. So hoarding is a kind of disease. It's, it's uh, pathological. Hoarding instinct is pathological. This is not true. Hoarding is in every one of us. And those who survive war situation, revolutionary situation, or hyperinflation, they will all agree without any hesitation that at one point people will see the need of mourning. Because if society is not able to supply the goods which are absolutely essential for survival, that you have to fall back on your mourning instinct. Now ideally, there should be the precious metals satisfy whatever hoarding 
instincts people have. Because this is a being different from person to person. One uh, type of person uh, finds the holding propensity of holding the more intense uh, propensity than others. Uh, there are very frugal people, and there are, on the other hand, the prodigal son, the biblical prodigal son, who is wasting his eternal inheritance, and then later on he comes to regret it. But the fact is that everybody has this propensity, uh, and uh, the, the fear of hoarding has to take this into account. And that's what we are trying to do. So we uh, go back to this idea when we develop the theory of interest. Now, I will just a second. Please to arbitrate uh, activities. Please notice that it's here where government interference comes in. It's not so obvious that the government is sabotaging the other architecture. But here it's obvious because that, that conspiracy between the government and the banks is exactly about this to prevent people from hoarding gold. Because under the gold standard, when a person hoards gold, he is withdrawing the bank reserves. So as a result of gold hoarding, the banks will be able to extend fewer loans. And this is the check and balance process in the economy. That the, the people decide ultimately how much credit should be available in society. If the banks overstep that limit, or the government pushes them to overstep that limit, there is going to be a reaction. And the reaction is gold hoarding, very natural thing, very healthy thing, as a result of which the banks have to retrench, and the governments have to give up some of the crazier and more ambitious plans to use social engineering. So this is the motivation for the government to sabotage the arbitrage between the gold market and the bond market. This is a completely natural thing. It's God ordained, I might say. God gave us gold so that people will be able to have an input in deciding the interest to the bond market. Because if they want more gold, they sell their bonds, thereby uh, pushing up the, uh, the rate of interest. Pushing down the gold, their bond prices pushing up the rate of interest. So this is perfectly natural. I hope without any sacrilege, I can say it's God or they. God wanted it this way. But governments and our interest is different. This is against public policy. So the government has a sacred duty to prevent people from hoarding gold. So let's nationalize the government against the Constitution. It's a constitutional right. The government cannot take your property without due processes, especially cannot take gold, because gold is money, the only money which the Constitution <coughs> of the United States represents. So never mind what is in the Constitution. After all, it's just a piece of paper, as uh, George W. Bush uh, declared. And uh, 
idea of public policy, which puts us about the constitution or anything else, even you know, there it is, we have a situation whereby the government uh, can stop or very seriously hinder the sabotage, the arbitrage process. And uh, this is how speculation comes into the picture. Because under the gold standard, the government does not sabotage, or does not have the power or the courage, the guts to sabotage uh, that arbitrage, then there is no speculation, at least bond speculation, because under the gold standard, the price of gold is so stable and so free of volatility that there is no money to be and they know this, and they don't touch bonds at all. But when the government throws the constitution to the winds, throws common decency to the winds, property rights, the right to make contracts, etc., and uses fraudulent bankruptcy and literally everything. Then, speculation in the bond market springs up and starts, and starts growing. And more speculation is not going to pacify the bond market. More speculation is going to create more volatility. So this is an endless spiral. More and more speculation in, in the bond market and it leads to catastrophe. And this is what we are seeing in the derivatives market. I have already mentioned, and I may have more time to return to this idea in a, a, a subsequent lecture, that my model for the power of derivatives market is this these layers of insurance. The bond market has become destabilized because of the sabotage of the gold bond arbitrage by the government. So th that calls for a need to have futures market for gold because that's how we can stabilize agricultural prices. So the mainstream, mainstream economics teaches that the same will work for the bond market. Well, that's wrong, but nevertheless, that's what they do. So there is the bond market and there's the bond future market. And then people discover that that's not enough because the bond future market is just as unstable as the bond market. So there is, in order to make that bond future market work, you need a layer of insurance, insuring bond values or bond future values. So they create that. There will be companies, I forgot the names, but perhaps you remember some of these names. There are two or three which are in trouble right now. That's right. You see, so they create that and say, okay, we are all right now because, sure, bond futures fluctuate, but we can take care of that because we have insurance. But the, that doesn't work either because these insurers have to be insured at a higher level. And another, and another, and another, and there's no end to it. So here is the Tower of Babel reaching to high heaven. And it's not going to work. It's going to collapse. We don't know in what shape and form it will collapse, but we do know that it will, will collapse. So I'm uh, uh, coming to the end of my time. And I'm uh, sorry, I won't have questions, uh, because uh, I still have to say something. But uh, during the next session, perhaps, if you have questions, save them, and I'll uh, return to questions. What I want to say is this. 
the productivity of speculation is an artificial thing. In, and it, in this context, it means bond speculation. Productivity of speculation in the commodity markets is very real. It's not artificial, and this is uh, one of the tools of the human mind which can control to some extent or limited extent the risks given by nature. So it's a good thing. And productivity of speculation is a positive thing in the commodity, in the uh, markets uh, for agricultural commodities. And to some extent also oil, because it depends on exploration, which is again a nature-given thing. It's, uh, it's uh, not artificial. And certainly food production and so on. This is positive productivity of speculation. Now when it comes to the bond market, because of the fact that this is risk, these are risks which are not given by nature, but they are given by, created by man, especially created by the government and the central bank, therefore the productivity of speculation is an artificial thing. And if you think that this can be sold in a natural way, like it's sold in the commodity markets, then you are wrong. Because you can only pretend, and the result will be an infinite tower of Babel. And the biblical lesson is that it's going to collapse. God is, God punished people for their conceitedness and they punish them by confusing their language. Now, I suggest that God is going to punish the governments for fostering this process by confusing the currencies. The currencies will complete, the currency markets will be in shambles. And, uh, Deflation, hyperinflation, don't know, but it's not going to continue. God did not ordain, I don't want to be too, uh, uh, to sound, uh, what's the word, too uh, sanctimonious. We're in a monastery. But, <laughs> but, but, I cannot escape but think in my own mind that this is God's punishment. Yes, you like it or not, you have to take it as a punishment. And no government can outsmart God in this sense. God ordained this world that there is gold. And you, the government can outlaw gold and outlaw silver and outlaw platinum and palladium and all the rest of it. But there will still be a most marketable good, whatever it is. The government removed a dozen commodities, there will still be a more, most marketable good. It will not be gold because the government grabbed it, won't be silver, government grabbed it. But there will be something, we don't know what it is, but the propensity to hoard is there. It's instinctive, it's in us and certain situations will bring it out and then people will hoard it and that will be money whether the government likes it. So in other words, there is no way to circumvent the order which government or which God has ordained in the world by simply confiscating gold as Keynes suggested and bringing uh, paper money and make it floating because according to Friedman this is going to be working better than the gold standard. It's not. It's going to collapse and that's how the world is ordained, like it or not. And that's what we are witnessing. So thank you very much ladies and gentlemen. I think I have said what I wanted about the, uh, about the productivity of speculation. Speculation is a good thing when it's nature given risk. It's a bad thing when it's man made risk.